3: there's a moment in lizzo's 2022 documentary love lizzo that i've been thinking about a lot recently um, if
0: we have not met yet, I'm lizzo. Um, it's really important for me to know who everyone is that's a part of my show
3: the singer is standing in an empty arena Behind her there's this wall of plastic seats, row after row waiting to be filled with thousands of adoring fans. In front of her, there's an expectant semicircle of dancers and crew members. It is pep talk time. And Lizzo tells her team about what she's been through to get to this moment.
0: Once upon a time, I had one person on the road with me, that had my DJ Sophia. And I had two dancers at a table with a cloth and a chair. <laughs> and uh, now
3: I'm emotional. <laughs> it's a journey that we, the documentary audience, have just watched unfold on screen. Love Lizzo charts the singer's rise from teen rapper to pop superstar performing at the Grammys. According to the description on BBC iPlayer, viewers meet the real Lizzo, the woman who, quote... Deals with the same issues as her fans around the world insecurity, rejection, and heartbreak. We watch her confront sexism, racism, and fatphobia, and develop into a global figurehead for self love and body positivity in the process. The film, Lizzo says, is a chance for her to share that journey in her own words.
0: I actually have the opportunity to truly definitively tell the story from 2019 and Truth Hurts going to number one all the way to right now with my arena tour. So it's it's gonna be incredible. It's finally the full story on my turn. I love that.
3: And that's why I keep going back to that moment, that pre-show pep talk in the arena. It's the emotional conclusion of the documentary.
0: I just wanna say thank you from the bottom of my heart You're making my dreams come true.
3: Because, yes, this is the story of Lizzo's journey, told on her own terms, in her own words. But it's not necessarily the story that other people tell about those years. Or about that first arena tour she's about to embark on.
4: The American rapper and singer Lizzo has been accused of sexual harassment by three former dancers. The Grammy winner and her production company are being sued over the claims. They include allegations of hostile
3: working environment and performers being shamed over their weight. Lizzo has emphatically denied the allegations and she's filed a motion to have the lawsuit dismissed. The singer says she
0: doesn't usually respond to what she calls false allegations, but she says these are so outrageous, she had to.
3: But in the wake of the lawsuit, more stories came out about that tour and about that documentary. The original director on the Love Lizzo film alleged that she dropped out of the project because of the star's disrespectful behaviour and the hostile work environment. And the LA Times reported that 14 dancers who feature in the film, talking about what it means to them to be a plus-size black artist, complained that the intimate footage was used without their knowledge or their consent they reportedly came to a confidential settlement early last year. It paints a rather more complicated story than that feel-good iPlayer description, doesn't it? And maybe that makes sense. Because although the documentary was directed by a well-respected Hollywood filmmaker, made by HBO Max and released on BBC Three... The producers include Live Nation, the company also responsible for producing Lizzo's arena tour, and Warner Music Entertainment, part of the conglomerate that owns her record label. Lizzo herself is credited as the executive producer, but you'd only know that if you stuck around for the credits. The film is an example of a trend you might have spotted in recent years, the rise and the rise of the celebrity documentary. What you might not have noticed is just how many of them are made by the team responsible for promoting the headline talent. For some reason, that detail is usually a little harder to spot. So in this episode of the Slow Newscast, that is what we're digging into. I'm going to hand over to my colleague Stephen Armstrong, who spent the last few weeks in the opaque world of the celeb documentary. And he's asking, has the trend gone too far.
1: Well, the press occasionally, I mean, seem to always print the things that make good copy or they think make good copy. They never mention the, the things that entertainers do for charity and um, raising money for boys clubs and the hospitals and that set but they always do if you're in some kind of a, if you happen to brush somebody leaving a bar or something like that. <laughs> Well, I've never, I've never done
2: anything like that. No,
4: just...
2: <laughs> or, um, I think... If I'm going to brush anybody, he's going to get knocked down. I think...
4: <laughs>
1: when I went to journalism school, they made me read a profile in Esquire called Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. It's an amazing piece of journalism. The author, Gay Talese, had been sent to Los Angeles to interview Frank Sinatra. But Frank... Well, Frank had a cold. So Gay Talese waited around. For days. He followed Frank and his entourage from recording studio to late-night bar to restaurant, just to see if he could get a little time with old blue eyes, always watching the flustered flunkies who served the star like he was a mafia don. In the end, Frank didn't grant the interview but Gay still produced a beautifully observed account of the power and menace of Sinatra in Hollywood. It was a neat trick, and we read it as students to learn about the ways that celebrities try to control journalists. In those days, Frank Sinatra only had a single weapon, and he deployed it, denying access, but Gay worked his way around it. That was the 1960s. Today, celebrities have a whole suite of tools to ensure they keep their image and their secrets closely guarded. It's the end result of a ferocious decades-long battle between celebrities, journalists and PR representatives. The famous want to give as little away as possible whilst selling their latest film-slash-record-slash-perfume line. The journalists want a scoop. The public, I know.
2: I mean, don't people just want a story? I'm Craig McLean. I'm an arts and culture journalist and editor. I'm consultant editor at The Face. I worked at The Face back in the 90s. In the good old days, you might say, I was deputy editor then.
1: Back in the good old days, as Craig calls them, celebrity interviews could be unfiltered fun, like the time he flew to a 16th-century abbey outside Paris, to accompany the Icelandic singer Björk on a 48-hour press junket.
2: Anyway, at the end of these 40 hours of interviews, she was in need of a drink, understandably, so she introduced me to the wonder that was a key royale which I'd never had before, and we got really drunk. We all ended up outside in the graveyard of this ruined old abbey, uh, drinking and dancing to a beatbox, as they were called them, back in the day. And then we started rugby tackling each other. And at some point, I rugby tackled Bjork, she rugby tackled me. I fell into a gravestone, hurt my arm.
1: The story goes on to involve Craig being fed Easter egg by models and there's table dancing and the kind of debauchery you really hope celebrities get up to. But the point is, when he woke up the next morning hungover and in pain, he
2: still had an interview to finish. I come down the stairs to do the interview. My clear my arm is hanging and Bjork's at the bottom of the stairs looking up at me and her face just drops. And I'm thinking, what's she looking at? And she went, oh my God, your arm. And I was like, yeah, it's fine. She goes, no, you've broken your arm. I ended up having to go to a French casualty with her driver and came back about four hours later with a cast on my arm thinking I'd royally messed up the interview. Actually, it made for a good... Another good entry point, you know, we could commiserate over how bad we both felt that day and then we finished off the interview back in London I went round to our flat in, I think Ludbrook Grove, we got a curry and we watched Top of the Pops. He went on to write this up as a cover story for The Face. The opening
1: line? The orc broke my arm. In many ways, it was the making of his career and it was the type of outrageous all-areas access that is much less common in today's media landscape.
2: PRs are much more controlling. Artists are much more aware slash savvy slash fearful. Social media is obviously something back then it literally did not exist so there was no sense of story having an afterlife. Now because things can travel at the faster than the speed of thought understandably artists PRs are much more you might say micromanaging in lots of ways and much more aware of A, the the reach of interviews they give, but also the damage that the interviews they give can do.
1: Ultimately, it's all about control. If you deny access, it doesn't stop journalists like Gay Talese telling the truth about you. So why let them be the storytellers? Why not put your own story out there? Tell it yourself. Tell it louder. Drown out anyone who suggests you might not be one hell of a guy or gal. Tell the world. Don't be fooled by the rocks that you've got. You're still Jenny from the block. And there's never been a better time to elbow difficult questions out of the way. Social media has changed the relationship between celebrities and their fans. The great and the good now have their own direct line at the click of a button. But social media was just the first tool to change the game. In the reporting of this, I spoke to a senior PR executive who represents high-level celebrity clients. Let's call him Tim. He didn't want us to use his real identity to protect his clients. So his interview is voiced by someone else.
5: The last three to four years, social media has become seen as a fake environment, filled with airbrush pictures and polluted by professional influencers. It's too perfect for people to believe.
1: Tim says that even social media is now old hat. And that is where the celebrity documentary comes in.
5: At the same time, the demand from streamers for content was peaking. You tie together a celebrity, and this is very important, a good director with a strong reputation, you create a new genre, the celebrity-created, owned or produced documentary, that looks and feels like an independently-commissioned documentary.
1: It's about co-opting the documentary form, taking the credibility of the filmmaker's style to create something that feels authentic.
5: Celebrities think it gets them around social media seeming fake. They think, if I get a respected director, it looks impartial.
1: But just like social media, these documentaries can be very curated.
2: Celebrities get a much safer, controlled, celebrity-friendly version of themselves put out into the wider world, something that they have been able to approve one of the biggest no-no's in journalism is copy approval or even quote approval. You never do that. And this is a version of that. It's getting a copy-approved interview. So it, 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 it keeps the brand intact. It keeps the brand untarnished. It keeps them from being asked too many sticky questions.
1: When Craig talks about copy approval, he means the practice that allows the interviewees to see the story prior to publication and then suggest changes or withdraw cooperation. It gives them control, not the journalist, and it's not something that many respectable publications do. But copy approval is given after the fact. Israel Daramola is a writer and a cultural critic based in New York who works for Defecta Media. When I spoke to him while reporting the story, he told me about an interview he did a couple of years ago with a very famous rapper, where the intervention came a whole lot earlier. When Israel asked about the rapper's then well-known legal problems, the rapper decided to shut down the interview. So far, I mean, it's a little extreme, but it's sort of normal. What was new was his reason. He said to Israel, why should I talk to you when I can just film my own movie, tell the story the way I want and get paid for it? Now that's the step change. What Israel realised was that for the already rich and famous, the beauty of streams like Netflix and Amazon's hunger for content is not just that you're telling the story on your own terms. You're also getting richer, as Tim points out.
5: Plus, the celebrities are paid for it. They're remunerated as if they were the showrunner and the producer. If Netflix and Amazon are going to pay top dollar for stars in the twilight of their careers like Robbie Williams, Williams gets paid, gets more Spotify streams maybe sells more tickets.
1: I mean, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't indeed? The numbers certainly make attractive reading. According to the entertainment industry bible, The Hollywood Reporter, the going rate for celebrity documentaries means that in-demand names can trouser between $100,000 and several million dollars. Plus, they get a potential share of the profits, cutely known as the back end. This is no small piece of change. And a documentary delivers on what celebrities love even more than money. Fame. In the week after the release of Netflix's documentary about David Beckham, David Beckham was the top trending topic on Google, with searches for the footballer spiking by 2,100%. Also on Netflix, the first three episodes of Harry and Meghan, the documentary, recorded almost 82 million viewing hours around the world, which the streamer said was the highest viewing hours of any documentary title in its first week. Fame indeed, but fame of a very filtered kind. There's a difference between a documentary about a celebrity and a documentary by a celebrity. Julia Nottingham is the founder of Dorothy Street Pictures, and she's a producer of documentaries including Pamela, A Love Story, which is about Pamela Anderson, and Colleen Rooney, The Real Wagatha. Julia says that she approached Pamela Anderson first with the idea of a documentary, not the other way around.
4: I got on a Skype with her and we just had a chat and it was the most wonderful first Skype I've ever had with anyone. For starters, she was in bed, and I don't think she planned that. But for me, I was like, wow, this is this is like a movie already. You know, she was in her pyjamas, she had a duvet. And at that minute, I was like, wow, this is someone that, you know, has has very different boundaries to other celebrities I had talked with in the past.
1: Pamela Anderson's career has been defined by the theft and leaking of a video of her having sex with her then-husband, drummer Tommy Lee. In the eyes of the paparazzi and tabloid media that made her a legitimate target. Her privacy was invaded and the purient tabloid agenda and the interest in her sexuality was troubling for a woman who was molested as a young child and raped when she was 12. The leaking of the tape had confined her to the role of bimbo and she gradually faded from public view. It's a powerful and tragic story. The problem Julia had was that nobody was interested. That was until with a Cruel irony, someone else decided they were going to sell Pamela's story for her.
4: I remember really clearly waking up one morning and seeing a Deadline article saying, you know, Seth Rogan is making the Pam and Tommy story. And I kind of looked at it and thought, wow, God, I can't believe Pamela would have given her permission for this. She's never mentioned it. And so I was immediately on texting to her team saying, like, you know, what is this? You know, it would have been great if you guys could have told us about this because, you know, it might hinder the documentary. And then when I found out she had absolutely nothing to do with it, I said, is that legal?
1: Pamela gave Julia access to her entire personal archive of videos. Julia says there were no conditions attached except a few privacy concerns.
4: These are really private home videos from her kids growing up, from her parents' early you know, days, and she gave them all to us. And the only caveat was, you need to get my permission on what you're going to use. And I think that makes total sense. And I said, absolutely. What
1: Julia produced is a great example of an Access documentary. The celebrity's voice is truly heard. The audience knows the celebrity has been involved. And while Pamela Anderson's son is a producer... The storytelling at least feels honest.
4: The films that really succeed are the ones that have the authenticity. The ones that, you know, don't succeed are the ones that probably do have too much control.
1: Paris Hilton won't risk anyone else telling her tale. So she's executive producing her forthcoming film, Paris the Memoir. Rihanna isn't producing her still untitled documentary, which was sold to Amazon for 25 million dollars. But she does have final approval on the edit. So. What does too much control look like? And how does it change the type of story that's going to be told? Full disclosure, I like David Beckham. I interviewed him once in Madrid. I pointed out that when his Man United team was the first to tour China, he was following in Wham's footsteps as the first band to tour China. Yeah, he said, but we had better hair. I mean, what's not to like? His documentary on Netflix was shot by the American actor and filmmaker Fisher Stevens. Fisher is best known for playing the role of Hugo on Succession, but he's also the director of a climate change documentary. He's credible. The Beckham doc has some beautiful moments. Who doesn't want to watch David Beckham lovingly grill a single mushroom?
5: I'm in here from like 11 till 9 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, later sometimes, just grilling. That's all I do.
1: And then there's the scene where Beckham turns investigative journalist over Victoria's claims of her humble working class roots.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think also we both come from families that work really hard. Both of our parents work really hard. We're very working, working class. Be honest. I I am being honest. honest. I am being honest. What car
1: did your dad drive you to school in?
4: So my dad. No. One answer. My dad. What car was it? Alright, it's not a simple answer because.
3: What car did you? Get your dad to drive
4: it to depends.
3: Continue. No, 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 no.
4: Okay, in walk the car, 80s, walk. my dad had a Rolls Royce.
1: This is the kind of moment that audiences don't usually see. Because, honestly, most of any journalistic interview doesn't make it into the copy or the final cut. For example, we played you a sizeable chunk of Craig McLean's Bjork story at the start of this episode. The truth? We played you less than a quarter of what he said. Maybe it had a great bit about Bjork that was as good as David roasting Victoria. But you'll never know. The journalist decided what you got to hear. And heaven knows journalists have done deals behind the scenes with celebrities about what's seen and what's not seen for years. And the reader or viewer has no idea. Are celebrity documentaries just a more upfront way of doing this? So, in the Beckham doc, there was good stuff on screen for sure. However, Fisher-Stevens, the director, was hired by David Beckham's own company, Studio 99, which produced the documentary, so he was working for the guy he was filming. Might this have blunted his sharper questions?
5: Fisher-Stevens gave lots of interviews about directing the David Beckham documentary, but I don't remember reading one where they talked about Beckham being the producer. You're filling the desire for celebrity content –
1: but without the meaningful perspective. The Beckham marriage has been dogged by rumours of infidelity, but the word affair is never mentioned in the series. David refers to the strain of negative media coverage, but it's a sideways glance at best. The documentary also failed to explore Beckham's controversial deal with Qatar to act as a sporting ambassador for the nation during the 2022 World Cup. The footballer has long been seen as an ally of the gay community, He's appeared in photoshoots in Attitude magazine and he speaks warmly of his gay fans. Accepting a reported £150 million from a country where homosexuality is illegal, punishable by imprisonment and, if you're Muslim, possibly even death. At least that deserved a question.
2: I don't think it's overly intrusive to want to present a kind of 360 degree image of someone it's great you know let's sing hosannas for the amount of goals that David Beckham scored or how good he looks when he's making his honey in the Cotswolds it's, but it's still justified to ask him about the bits where it wasn't quite as peachy.
1: A spokesperson for David Beckham said the footballer did not have final approval of the series and that Fisher Stevens decided not to include the Qatar story because it only received attention in the UK and this was a global documentary The Harry and Meghan documentary, meanwhile, was produced by Dan Cogan, who won an Academy Award in 2018 for Icarus, his expose of the Russian Olympic doping scandal. The documentary was made by Archwell, Harry and Meghan's own production company. Now, like Pamela Anderson, you can fully understand why Prince Harry, of all people, would want to take control of his own story. But still, who chose to ignore Meghan's first ill-fated marriage? Who offered no rebuttal to any of the points, claims or complaints they made? including that the palace controlled everything from the announcement of their engagement to Meghan's wardrobe.
0: We were in this bubble where everything is controlled by them. Couldn't even text my friends a photo. Yeah. If you can't do this, you can't... OK. And you do as you're told, but your world just becomes more and more like this.
1: Or that Prince William traded stories about Harry to the press.
0: And To see my brother's office copy the very same thing that we promised the two of us would never, ever do... That was heartbreaking.
1: Or that palace staff would not let Meghan seek help when she felt suicidal. Here's Tim, the PR expert.
5: Some of the interviews succeed, but some really fail. Harry and Meghan went way too far. It felt like one of the more fawning Nicholas Witchell or Trevor McDonald interviews.
1: Dan Cogan told a journalist last February, people talk about the golden age of documentary, and it was exciting to be part of that. It's also true, he continued, that we left that age three or four years ago. And we now live in the corporate age of documentary.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times
1: There's a third type of celebrity documentary that's becoming increasingly popular. The issues-based film. There are a lot of examples on the BBC website. Ex-Busted member Matt Willis on addiction. Amy Dowden from Strictly Come Dancing on Crohn's disease. Rod Gilbert, the comedian, on male infertility. These focus on difficult, deeply personal issues a star has faced during their life. They're often made by external production companies. And they're hard to categorise. The line feels blurred. On the one hand, these are serious stories about real vulnerabilities. They feel like a celebrity using their power for good. Isn't that exactly what some people want them to do? Plus, they are clearly a different style of film to the standard PR fluff documentary. But they are by their nature autobiographical. In that sense... If you're cynical about it, it's also a form of personal PR. It's just a much smarter version, telling the audience a new story, rather than a rehashed version of the old one. In July 2022, the BBC showed a documentary called The Real Mo Farah. Mo Farah, of course, is the most successful British track athlete in modern Olympic history.
5: Farah
4: is the Olympic 10,000 meter champion. He's the Olympic 5,000 meter champion. He is a man of the moment. <laughs> By Deborah
2: Mescal and now Farah's got the double. He's the Olympic champion. We are, without doubt, watching one of the great champions. Farah is a double
1: Olympic
0: champion over
1: 10,000 meters. In his 2013 autobiography, he described coming to the UK with his mum fleeing the civil war in Somaliland. But the real Mo Farah documentary told a different story.
5: Most people know me as Mo Farah, but it's not my name or it's not the reality.
1: The athlete revealed that at the age of nine, he was illegally trafficked to the UK to work as a domestic servant.
5: If I wanted food in my mouth, my job was to look after those kids, shower them, cook for them, clean for them. And she said if you ever want to see your family again don't say anything if you say anything they will take you away
1: his pe teacher who appears in the film helped him get out and helped him find a home with a different family mo gained british citizenship to compete in running events internationally the shocking story garnered headlines around the world and amongst its awards it won the bafta for best single documentary which was picked up by mo and the team from atomized studios the production company that made the film for the BBC. Atomized is part of the Freud's Group, a communications company that offers, through a collection of agencies, celebrity PR, investor relations, brand design, and, with Atomized, something they describe as content solutions for influential leaders, organisations and brands. In 2015, The Guardian reported that Mo Farah had hired the PR arm of Freud's Group as, quote, «crisis management experts», following the fallout from negative press coverage. In 2022, Jo Livingston, a partner at Freud's, was asked by PR Week about her professional highlight of the year. She said, "'Working with our long-term client Sir Mo Farah to support him in telling his very personal and emotional story of how he came to the UK and the subsequent years.'" Atomized's work includes documentaries like the one made with TV presenter Bill Turnbull following his chemotherapy journey over the course of a year, it also includes more corporate work, like Inside KFC at Christmas. That's a documentary filmed inside a KFC branch that, quote, celebrates the staff pulling out all the stops to end the year a finger-licking success. And it was aired on Channel 4. The description doesn't mention that KFC has had a long-standing relationship with the PR branch of Fridge Group. Atomized is by no means the only production company that does corporate films as well as documentaries. And the BBC had made documentaries which raised difficult questions about Mo Farah in the past. So you can understand why he would want to tell such a personal story with people he knows. Plus, it feels honest. It's upfront about the lies Mo Farah felt like he had to tell to hide the difficult truth about his arrival in the UK. But how much can the viewer reasonably expect to know about the people and process of making a documentary? Does the audience have the right to know how that story is being told and by who? We spoke to Zad Rogers, founder and creative director of Atomized Studios. He told us that Atomized was an independent company within the Freud's group and that the BBC and Red Bull Studios had final sign-off on all editorial decisions. The question, really, is whether the BBC should have made that relationship clear. And it's not just the Mo Farah documentary. Only viewers who watched to the end of Lizzo's documentary on the iPlayer would find out that she was an executive producer. According to the BBC's own editorial guidelines, any programming from a company that has commercial interests in its content needs to be flagged as such. The
2: guidelines read, To be fair and transparent in our partnerships and other external relationships, the nature of the relationship must be appropriately signalled to the audience. We spoke to the
1: broadcasting regulator Ofcom and we approached the BBC with questions about these guidelines. The BBC told us that the real Mo Farah was commissioned by the BBC Documentary Department, who had full editorial control. In a statement, the corporation added,
2: The BBC commissioning editor Emma Loach was involved throughout the production process, in consultation with the BBC's editorial policy and programme legal advisers. Love Lizzo was an acquisition for the BBC's globally recognised documentary strand Storyville for BBC Three to accompany Lizzo's headline performance at Glastonbury. Lizzo was clearly identified as an executive producer.
1: Ofcom told us that individuals are not considered to be commercial entities under its Broadcasting Standards Code. This feels like regulation has fallen behind reality. Celebrities are brands in so many ways, from the product lines they own to the image they construct to make money. There are millions of dollars at stake here. Do you think that we should, as viewers or fans, know when the story is being told by a journalist versus the story being told by a PR company?
2: I do think we should know when the subject has creative and financial uh, skin in the game, as it were, because then it becomes a different thing. Then it becomes much more likely to be... PR spun. I don't know how you do that. I don't know if you have, you know, like a, a crown style disclaimer at the start of the doc saying this is a, dramatized, a, dra- a version of events uh, but I think it behooves us to know the origins of these documentaries certainly or, or see peer past the curtain and understand why this is, this is being made at this time. It's not obviously uh, obligatory. Most viewers are probably quite happy to sit and watch Uh, the Lewis Capaldi doc or the Beckham doc or the Ronnie O'Sullivan doc or the Lizzo doc, Pam Landerson doc and just think, wow, I'm getting getting great access to these people and they take it for what it is. Uh, But I think for any of us who are with a broader uh, view or a more nuanced view or or want to have a more nuanced view, then, yeah, we should definitely look behind and look at the credits and see uh, who is making this and why. Let's be clear. These documentaries themselves
1: aren't really the problem. It's about transparency. Maureen Ryan is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Her book Burn It Down is a riveting expose of Hollywood's dirtiest secrets. She's also an avid documentary watcher.
0: You know, when it comes to the realm of public figures, politicians and so forth, I actually think that if you pick the right documentary filmmaker and you give them that access and you allow them to have a point of view you are probably going to come up with the best product, but that's taking a risk. And I think that more and more entities with power and fame are ever more risk averse. And that could be a corporation, a politician, a footballer, you know, a top musician. You don't necessarily get the best film when the people involved have creative control. You might get the best image management, I don't know that you're necessarily going to get the best documentary film.
1: What they're doing, she says, is banking on the prestige of the form.
0: A documentary film has a glow of legitimacy. It has a prestige factor that you're not going to get with, you know, other forms of storytelling. People are trading on the prestige of the documentary form.
1: If this form can be bought and used to build someone's brand, and avoid any uncomfortable truths, well, then it becomes propaganda.
0: I feel like we're moving toward this model where that specific point of view and points to make are going to be dropped by the wayside in favor of making this celebrity or making this public figure or politician look better. And again, this is just a part of a larger, troubling trend of the media not being an independent entity that does meaningful work, but, you know, serves as kind of the handmaiden of those who already have a lot, a lot of power, a lot of insulation.
1: Because as Maureen Ryan points out, it's not just celebrities. Take Trump 2024, the world after Trump. You can find it on Amazon, Apple TV, and its own website, trump2024.film. On Apple, it's listed as a documentary, with the description chronicling President Trump's administration and what the nation will look like after his term. It was made by a production company that has explicitly come to support the Trump campaign. The film's own website has a slightly different tone. This film will awaken the people, it hollers, under a drop-down menu with options to donate to the Trump campaign. In 2020, Michelle Moan, then a conservative peer, was accused of lobbying the government by exploiting a VIP fast-track lane set up during the pandemic to win £200 million worth of contracts for her husband's company, PPE MedPro. In December 2023, Michelle Mohn released a documentary admitting she had lied about her links to PPE MedPro, but said she had been unfairly victimised.
0: Um, we're sick and tired reading all the lies every single day in the media.
5: How difficult has it been to read some of the headlines? So difficult, because you know, I am outspoken and I think everyone
4: feels that because we have been silent that we are guilty.
1: The documentary was published on the YouTube channel of Mark Williams-Thomas, an award-winning journalist with a string of successful documentaries for ITV and Netflix. I'm
5: Mark Williams-Thomas, a former British detective-turned-journalist with over 30 years' experience investigating some of the biggest cases in the UK and worldwide, like my world-exclusive interview with Paralympian
2: Stories.
1: But while he produced and presented the YouTube documentary, it was funded by PPE MedPro. The Guardian has since reported that he's worked as a private investigator for Michelle Mohn and for PPE Medpro. The whole documentary was part of a carefully managed media fightback by Michelle Mohn. This is why the celebrity-produced documentary matters. They are increasingly popular, and when something is a success, it spawns imitations. We've already seen what happens if we don't care about the provenance of our information. In an election year, we need to know who is telling us political stories. If we know who a book's author is, we're smart enough to decide for ourselves if it will be any good. That's why autobiographies have the author's name on the cover. You know it's their version you're reading. It makes sense for the same rules to apply to documentaries. These are their stories told on their terms. In other words, what you're watching is my story by me.
3: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Slow Newscast. It was reported by Stephen Armstrong. It was produced by me, Claudia Williams, and Matt Russell. And the executive producer was Jasper Corbett. Sound design by Dominic DeLaghi. This episode includes clips from Love Lizzo by HBO Max and Boardwalk Pictures, The Johnny Carson Show on NBC, Beckham by Netflix Studio 99, Harry and Meghan by Netflix Archwell Productions, The Real Mo Farah by BBC Atomized Studios and The Interview, Baroness Moan and the PPE Scandal by Mark Williams-Thomas. Tortoise. Small
0: details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat
3: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
5: Hello, I'm John Curtis.
3: And I'm Rachel Wolfe. This week on Trendy, the monarchy. A year after the coronation and as King Charles returns to work, what do we think of it and how has that changed over time?
5: To listen to the episode... Search for Trendy on Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed to make sure you don't miss an episode.